We also know that early intervention can make a big difference and parents being involved in that intervention is also one of the sort of key pieces that seems to really help. This is the Curious Neuron Podcast, where we take a compassionate approach to science-based parenting. Join us as we break down the science of child development and parenting into digestible and applicable advice. friend, welcome back to another episode of the Curious Neuron Podcast. My name is Cindy Huffington and I am your host. I am a mom of three and I have a PhD in neuroscience and what I try to do is connect you with the research so that you don't have to take the time to sift through whatever we can find online. Um, But as you know, what I'm really, uh, you know, passionate about is making science accessible to you. And this particular person and researcher from McGill University that I'm going to speak with today um, is also really passionate and involved in open science. I want to thank the Tannenbaum Open Science Institute at the Neuro here in Montreal for supporting the Curious Neuron podcast. This is a goal of mine, the same as they have, that I want to make science accessible. However, I feel that sometimes science is really accessible within institutions and within, um, you know, universities. And I want to take that out of the universities and make it accessible to you, the parent. The more we can understand our child and ourselves, the better we can, you know, parent them and, and help them and support them. And today's topic is all about autism. I will be chatting with Dr. Julie Scora, who is from McGill University. And Dr. Scora is a licensed neuropsychologist who specializes in neurodevelopmental conditions such as autism spectrum disorder, ADHD, fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. She um, is also very heavily involved in open science, and she'll discuss that in our chat as well. She's involved in many studies at McGill University, and she'll talk about this wide spectrum of studies that she's part of. But most importantly, what she's interested in are the barriers to access that a lot of children have when it comes to a diagnosis or um, care, once they do get a diagnosis for a neurodevelopmental condition. And that's what I wanted to focus our conversation on today. First, I wanted to understand what research is currently happening when it, uh, you know, when it comes to children um, on the spectrum and also what sort of barriers she's seeing and how can we as a society um, try to change this. So that will be the entire conversation. Before we move on to today's conversation, I want to remind you to follow Curious Neuron on Instagram at Curious underscore Neuron. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel where you will be able to find this interview on our YouTube channel and past podcast episodes as well. Or you can visit curiouseneuron.com and read some of our blog posts. You can visit the Academy and um, purchase some workshops or PDFs on our website. And you can also access all the past podcast interviews so that you can have um, a bit more of a, a library in front of you and see which one would meet your needs right now as a parent. And for parents who are looking for some support when it comes to their children's emotions, I am also the co-founder of the WonderGrade app. This is an app that has this cute little monster called Ollie who helps your child through really big emotions such as worry and anger. And there's um, some activities that help your child learn mindfulness and breathing techniques. And if your child really struggles with bedtime, we have some calm down techniques and some um, meditations that can help your child wind down right before bed. You can click the link in the show notes and try the app for free for two weeks. 
One last important and exciting note is that today is episode 99 of the Curious Neuron podcast, meaning that next week I will be publishing episode 100 of this podcast. We have an extremely special guest and I want to give you a heads up because if you're not subscribed to the podcast, today's the day to do so. Next week, I will be interviewing Dr. Bruce Perry. And if you haven't heard of him or read his books, or if your life hasn't been changed by his work, he wrote the books, What Happened to You and The Boy Who Was Raised as a Dog. These are both very important books that help us understand how the brain develops um, when we're young and how trauma and the environment impacts our brain. And I went into a really um, deep conversation with him along with Claudia, who is is also part of the Curious Neuron podcast. She jumped on as a co-host and we had um, just this really powerful conversation with him. So stay tuned for that episode next week. All right, let's not wait any longer for today's episode. Please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Julie Scora. Hi, Dr. Scora. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me. So today we are focusing our conversation, as I said in the intro, on autism. Um, before we begin, I did give a bio, but I'd love for you to talk about the research that you're doing at your lab and and um, the open science. This is the first time that I get to speak to somebody about how they include this in their lab. So I'd love to hear more about it. Sure. Um, so, I mean, I'm involved in uh, research projects that really cover a range of different topics. And, you know, I've been a clinician for most of my career and really have only gotten into research in the last few years. So I'm really more of a co-investigator or a collaborator than sort of having my own research program. Um, and in some in some studies, I'm 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 not a co-investigator, but I'm the clinician that oversees the evaluation component of the study. So I'm involved in lots of different research projects. Um, and one key area right now um, is just focusing on looking at the barriers um, to healthcare for autistic individuals. So this includes a project that's going to run focus groups with different stakeholders, such as clinicians, caregivers, um, administrators, et cetera, to look at what barriers there are um, across Canada in accessing and using healthcare services um, and to try to identify some solutions to help mitigate those barriers. And another study that we're doing that's sort of related to this idea of barriers to healthcare access is looking at a clinical teaching model that is called ECHO. And the ECHO project aims to really, you know, enhance the specialization of clinicians that might not have access to specialized centers or specialized mentorship in an effort to try to increase the capacity of the system um, generally. So, you know, the goal of that obviously is to try to reduce some of those barriers to healthcare for um, autistic folks in terms of making, you know, more clinicians able and ready to see these patients and more comfortable seeing, you know, seeing these these patients in their care. So really looking at those, those um, barriers to providing good services is a big focus. Um, and also related to that is, is another study looking at um, the caregiver skills training, which is a, an intervention for caregivers that was developed by the WHO um, and hopefully also addresses barriers to healthcare because it is a scalable intervention that doesn't rely on highly specialized therapists. You know, it, it relies on really parents learning what they can do at home as part of their regular routines to help their children. And then related to open science, um, certainly most specifically, I'm also a co-investigator on the Quebec 1000 Families Project, um, which we call the Q1K study. Um, and the project uh, aims to really create a large data repository of information about people across the lifespan 
who are on the spectrum or have other related neurodevelopmental conditions. And really the idea is to provide just a really huge source of information about many aspects of uh, people's functioning. So from MRI data, EEG data, behavioral data, um, genetic information, et cetera. And this uh, study was, you know, founded really in the principles of open science. That's a really key part of this study. So, you know, all of the, you know, publications or research outputs would be available on an open access basis. And in general, I mean, the Montreal Neuro has really committed itself to open science. And so this, this study is, is uh, very much um, part of that effort to kind of, you know, make this information really, this, this research really um, accessible. I absolutely love that you guys are focusing on these barriers because I get to see the other end where I'm speaking with the parents and hanging out with them on social media and online and our blog. And I will hear about them and, you know, a parent who receives a diagnosis or is even struggling to get that diagnosis, first of all. And then the question becomes, now what? And how do I access what my child needs or how do I find them? Um, so this is such an important um, part of the piece of the puzzle for these parents to help them get that access. Um, what do you hear from patients that you work with, you know, in terms of the barriers? What are they, are they struggling with the same thing that I'm hearing from parents as well? Yeah. I mean, you know, there's, there's barriers at multiple levels. Um, mm. You know, just, just accessing a diagnosis is, is already difficult um, because there are long wait lists and there's just not enough people that have the specialized training to be able to do that kind of work. And so that's, um, you know, a huge barrier because obviously, you know, most of these uh, kiddos can't get any kind of supports or services until they have the diagnosis. And that's exactly. kind of like the key yeah. to open the door for them. And so there's a barrier right off the bat from just getting the diagnosis. You know, sometimes that's a process that can take a year or two. Um, and then once they have the diagnosis, because there are limited services and resources and so many people trying to access them, there are long wait lists for all of those services as well. And so, you know, that's, that's another barrier of just waiting mm -hmm. for, you know, waiting for the different services that there might be. And of course, you know, here in Montreal, you know, we're lucky that we have large, you know, treatment centers and, and more specialized um, uh, providers, but of course, people across the province who are living in more rural areas and don't have access to a large urban center, um, those kinds of services that their child meet, needs might not even exist where they live. And certainly, you know, we, we look also a lot at, you know, how does language also create a barrier? So there are a lot of families, you know, whose first language is not English or French, um, or even for Anglophone families, sometimes they can't get services in their, in their native language. Mm -hmm. And so those are all things that people struggle with you know, when they're trying to access services for autism, just, just very similar to what the barriers are for many other conditions as well, really. Yeah. Yeah. As mental health too, you know, it's just, yeah. Um, I, the parents uh, on our platform asked quite a few questions actually, and most of them wanted to know what they should be looking for in terms of signs and symptoms and how early can you diagnose a child? We'll talk about that in just one second, but I, I'd love to add to that. Like, do you think that we need more, you know, education in terms of helping parents identify this and this might help bring them to to get diagnoses, like a diagnosis earlier? I mean, I, I feel like I've seen a, 
uh, a big difference over the course of my career. You know, I'm, I'm over 15 years in now, and I and I feel like there is a big difference in terms of um, awareness of what the signs and symptoms are. And so I do think there are more parents that are bringing these concerns to their pediatricians or their family doctors than there used to be. Whereas I feel like in Good. the past, these things may have been flagged a little bit more by the doctors or by the schools. Um, so parents seem to be pretty well informed generally, but, you know, obviously there's still gaps um, and, you know, it does vary depending on the parent, but I do feel like there's a lot of parents that seem to be more aware of what the developmental expectations are. Um, certainly, uh, I, I, I encourage all parents if they have any concerns as early as they have them, as soon as they start having a concern that they really should talk to their pediatrician or family doctor because the wait lists are so long for diagnosis that, you know, even though um, a diagnosis is hard to establish um, before 18 months, um, it's still great to get a child on the wait list before that if they can. So, you know, really, so, so when we're talking about like what age is ideal, really, you know, they're it's very difficult for us to establish a diagnosis. Definitely before 12 months, we wouldn't necessarily even do an evaluation because we don't have the tools to be able to do that. And, you know, right now um, we don't have any biomarkers that can reliably predict autism. Um, So the diagnosis is really based on observing symptoms and behaviors and the behaviors that we're interested in are things that are related to socialization skills. And these kinds of skills usually, you know, don't come online in infancy, um, you know, until, until, you know, the age of, of 12 months or 12 to 18 months is when we start to see some of these social skills that we would expect. Um, and so at that age, you know, you can kind of really start to look at it. So I would say, you know, between 12 and 18 months is about as early as we can really look at this in any kind of reliable way. Nevertheless, it is difficult still to, um, sometimes differentiate autism from other developmental conditions or delays. Um, So usually if we make a diagnosis before 30 months of age, we usually recommend that the child come back after 30 months of age just for another look and to confirm the diagnosis because it can be really hard to differentiate in that age range. Um, But obviously the earlier the better because then you can really get the, um, the services in place sooner. Um, and in terms of the signs and symptoms to look for, um, which I think was the other part of the question, um, you know, from the research on, uh, sort of looking at, um, baby siblings of kids who already had a diagnosis. So we, you know, were able to kind of look at kids that we knew were at an elevated likelihood of maybe ending up with a diagnosis. Um, from that research, we know that some of the earlier signs are things like, Um, not being responsive to their name or to other vocalizations that the parent is making, um, of course, in the absence of any hearing impairment, right? So there's no hearing problem, but they're not necessarily paying attention to or responding to when their name is called or when they're spoken to. Um, They also might not be reacting to social smiles. So, you know, when the caregiver smiles at them, they might not be smiling back. And that's something you can see fairly early, actually. Um, And, you know, other signs include things like not really engaging in joint attention, meaning that they don't necessarily, you know, attend to things that the caregiver is trying to get them to attend to with them or trying to show them um, and engage with them. And and they they also might not be trying to engage um, 
themselves or, or initiating joint attention with the caregiver. So they might be not, you know, trying to get the adult's attention by cooing or making noises as much as you would expect. Um, and other early in spot, other early signs that we see also can include things like not, um, not using gestures, um, you know, so between 12 and 18 months, we expect to see kids pointing and waving bye-bye and, you know, maybe blowing kisses or other little simple gestures like that. But if they're not doing that, that would be, that would be a flag, um, as well as making, you know, making eye contact when they're doing mm -hmm. those things. And we might also see them engaging in some repetitive movements a little more frequently than we would expect or um, engaging with objects in ways that are a little bit less typical. So, you know, shaking or spinning things or, you know, peering at things closely as opposed to, you know, playing in a way that that appears more typical. So those are kind of the things that early on parents can watch mm -hmm. for. Um, and certainly, you know, none of those things alone means that a child will have um, you know, Thanks, autism. Yes. <laughs> but, you yeah. know, if you see some of those things together, it's, it's a good idea to get, you know, to have a conversation with your, with your family doctor and really keep an eye on that and, and get a referral as early as possible. Uh, once you mentioned it to your family doctor, I'm just curious, because there are people listening in Canada and the States. I don't know if the systems would be the same, but here in, in, in Montreal and Quebec, once you speak to your doctor, who, who do they refer you to in terms of a diagnosis? Is it a, a neuropsychologist or psychiatrist, psychologist? Who do you see? That's a good question. So there are, in Quebec, there are a variety of people that can make a diagnosis. So it could be a psychologist or a neuropsychologist. It could be a developmental pediatrician. It could be uh, it could be a pediatrician. It could be a neurologist. It could be a psychiatrist. So there are various people that might give a diagnosis. Not everybody in that profession would be sort of specialized in being able to do that, right? So they couldn't just go to any developmental pediatrician or any psychologist and, and be able to have that done. So really what happens here is if, if there's a concern, usually they're referred to their, um, to their CIUS, their, their, um, mm -hmm. you know, their local sort of service center, yeah. um, in their region. And that usually gets directed to whatever clinic, um, is related to that sector, um, that could offer that kind of diagnostic evaluation. So there are, you know, there are some clinics within the CU system, and then there's also clinics within the, um, the, the hospitals that aren't part of the, the, the CU system. So, you know, the Montreal Children's Hospital and, and St. Justin and places like that have specialized clinics to be able to do that. Um, but parents can also go to the private sector if they don't, you know, want to wait for, you know, um, a public health uh, evaluation and, and they might be able to get an evaluation a little quicker that way, but then obviously it's not covered. No, yeah. Um, I'm, I'm curious about the prevalence of, of autism. I've, you know, spoken with some older adults that said, well, in my day, we never heard of this. And this discussion continues. I'm just curious to know, I, I know you had a recent study that looked at prevalence. Yeah. And, and determined that it has increased. I'd love to hear a little bit more about that study and what might be contributing to this increase. Yeah, so we recently um, published a global prevalence paper um, that really was the sort of a, a follow-up to a systematic review that looked at prevalence uh, back in 2012, um, which I was not involved in. Um, it was done by some of the same members of, of my team. But certainly since that time, the prevalence rates, you know, did rise. 
And I mean, I can tell you just anecdotally over the course of my career, 15 years ago, when I started practicing, we were telling families that the rate was about, you know, one in in every 150 kids. Whereas now the most recent estimates um, coming out of the CDC in the U.S. is saying that the rate is about one in 44 in the United States. Wow. So that's, you know, quite a big difference um, mm-hmm. over just the last, you know, 20, <laughs> 20 mm-hmm. or so years. Um, so really, you know, the, the rates have increased. That is for sure. That is certain. Um, and, you know, there's different ideas about what's causing that. Of course, you know, a lot of people think that um, it's sort of easy to assume that it might be increasing due to environmental factors, right? Like toxins or chemicals that weren't around a hundred years ago that might be, you know, making this uh, more prevalent. Um, But really there isn't much compelling evidence showing a link there in terms of like environmental factors. Um, And we definitely need more research in that area to really kind of figure out if, if that is a factor, but Mm -hmm. Really, we know that a lot of the prevalence can actually be um, explained by an increase in the awareness of autism and, you know, just the the fact that a lot more pediatricians and family doctors are doing routine screening for autism um, as part of their, you know, uh, well baby checkups at, you know, 12, 18, 24 months. So that's become sort of more systematically done over time, which I think is, you know, capturing more kids. And, um, you know, there's more concerns also being raised by parents, by daycares, by teachers who are more aware also of what to look for. So that's a big factor. Um, And another factor also has to do with changes in the diagnostic criteria. So, um, you know, the, the, the diagnostic criteria have evolved over time. And so, you know, now I think more so than in the past, we're recognizing profiles of symptoms that are milder than what we used to really consider to be part of the diagnosis. And we're, you know, identifying kids who have higher cognitive ability and higher language skills that we didn't used to really capture as much. Um, And certainly, you know, we're capturing more girls now than we used to be. So girls were really an underrepresented group, but now we're, we're identifying girls more than we used to in the past. So a lot of these different things have led to an increase in in the numbers of kids being identified. Is autism represented differently in girls versus boys? Why is it that, um, like you said, I've spoken to many women who are adults now that didn't get diagnosed as children, but as adults and received many different diagnoses as children. So is, is it because it presents itself very differently? Yeah, it it does, certainly. Um, So we, you know, we we do see in girls that, um, well, there's actually two sort of patterns. So um, in some ways, and and certainly historically, girls who got diagnosed had more severe symptoms, actually. So um, there were uh, among the girls that that were getting identified, usually they actually had more, you know, cognitive impairments and, and more severe symptoms um, because they were the ones, you know, being identified. Now we now we're identifying girls with higher cognitive and 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 language ability and milder symptoms that we used to miss. And really, I think it it has a lot to do with the fact that girls seem to have milder social impairments and. Are, are sort of able to kind of 
you know, mask their symptoms a bit better. Mm -hmm. They're able to kind of look around and imitate their peers a little bit better and really, and really mask their symptoms more so. They also might be a little bit less likely to engage in some of the behaviors that might stick out a little bit more that we see in boys. So um, they might not engage in as many repetitive movements as the boys do, or they might have um, sort of these these sort of intense interests uh, in girls. You know, the intense interests that we see tend to be in areas that are considered a little bit more socially acceptable, for example, as opposed to some of the intense interests that we see in boys. So it 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 is sort of harder to recognize sometimes. And and like you said, you know, quite often we do see that girls will get diagnosed later, you know, in adolescence or in adulthood, because they actually start to really develop more mental health symptoms. So anxiety and depression seem to be what they present with, you know, to a psychiatrist's office or, or a psychologist's office. And then it's sort of that is sort of the entry point for them. But then through that, you know, sort of process and evaluation, they, they, they come to um, a diagnosis of, of autism. So sort of, yeah, it's sort of like a different sort of entry point um, because the symptoms do look a little bit different. Um, And, you know, as you said, we often see girls being diagnosed with a variety of things (laughs) over over time that just sort of like don't quite capture all of the, you know, symptoms and aren't quite maybe, you know, hitting the nail on the head, but they, they, they often have been diagnosed with, with other things instead. Mm-hmm. Um, so there, you know, there's definitely, um, work to be done there because really yeah. a lot of what we know about autism comes from research on boys and, you know, that's, who's been in the studies so far. And even our, our, our current diagnostic criteria are skewed more towards, a uh, a presentation that is more, mm-hmm. um, sort of common in, in boys than in girls. So I think they're, there is a lot of work to be done there for sure. I spoke with um, uh, a woman who was 30 in her thirties and she was diagnosed with autism in her thirties. And you described exactly what she said, where she was diagnosed with, with um, at the beginning, I think it was ADHD and then, or ADD. And then it was uh, depression as a, a teenager and anxiety. And then it was only later that she received her diagnosis. And for her, it was really just knowing exactly why she was having these struggles allowed her to work on the struggles, right? So it's it's um, it was really an important diagnosis for her to finally understand why she was experiencing these struggles with work and and so on yeah. in relationships. I actually often see uh, adolescents and young adults who you know when you give them the diagnosis, they actually express feeling really relieved and mm-hmm. and kind of glad to to have that answer because it it helps relieve some of the burden that they felt, mm-hmm. um, you know, of feeling different and not knowing why and feeling like they weren't you know succeeding necessarily socially and not knowing why and this sort of alleviates some of that burden from them and gives them an explanation and also gives them a community too. So they can sort of connect with other people with the same diagnosis and kind of see that, Oh, there's other people out there like me. So I actually hear that a fair amount. That that's so important. I I had another question about prevalence. We'll get back to it because I I really like what you just said. Um, You know, I, I think I get to speak to some parents who are worried about their child's future and some parents who perhaps see some signs and are not sure, like are worried about getting the diagnosis. And then what is that going to mean for their child? But the fact that you expressed it this way and that teenagers or, old, or adults 
are feeling this way. I think, I hope that if there's a parent who's struggling with, you know, going ahead and, and getting the diagnosis or that just received a diagnosis for their child realizes that it, there will be a way that they will figure out how they fit within the community and how to use their differences to, to continue. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I definitely think that, you know, it's important to recognize that anytime you get a diagnosis for your child, you know, there is a, a process of having to cope with that and deal with that. Yeah. And, and parents do report sort of having like a grieving process and and, yeah. and that's normal and, and nobody should, you know, nobody should ever sort of take that away. But I, I definitely do feel like there is a, a reason for optimism now more than there used to be, because I do think that there is greater awareness. There's a push for more acceptance, more inclusion, um, we're seeing more supports, more accommodating environments for kids in schools and mm -hmm. their communities. So I feel like there there are more efforts now to support um, these individuals at school, in the workforce. I mean, we still have a long way to go for sure. Mm -hmm. um, but I do think that th the needle is moving in the right direction. And, you know, with all of the research that that we're doing, too, we have you know, more understanding and, and, and hopefully can develop, you know, more, you know, more services and supports that we know mm -hmm. can help people succeed. So I think, you know, it, it's, it's not, um, it's not the sort of gloomy <laughs> um, yeah. uh, information that maybe people used to think that it was, you know, mm -hmm. back, there was a time when people who, you know, received this diagnosis for their child were told that their child would have to go into an institution, for example, mm -hmm. you know, and that's not the case anymore. You know, we we're we're doing much better at supporting the the differences that autistic people yeah. have in the in in the community and at school. So I, I think there's there is some cause for optimism there. Given the research that you've done um the past 15 plus years and 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 your your work where do you think we're kind of lagging behind a little bit in society and in, in applying what you've learned in research um, and applying the science to help autistic people in their community? There's still a lot of, you know, a lot of areas where we need to do better, certainly. I mean, I think, you know, the, the idea of inclusion um, needs to move forward a lot more and, and, and not just mm. in the sense of, oh, let's include people because it's the right thing to do, but like, mm. let's include people yes, because... Thanks these individuals have a lot to offer and they actually have a lot of really amazing abilities, you know, and, and, and are, you know, for example, in the workforce, you know, um, can, can be really great employees and really bring a lot to, um, to a company. So recognizing that you're, you're including people, not just because, you know, you feel like this is a charitable thing that you should do. That's certainly not where we want to be. You know, we want to be in a place where, where autistic folks are being recognized for the fact that they, you know, have all kinds of, of, of skills and abilities to offer that are really valuable to employers. So I feel like more work needs to be done there to recognize that and to recognize, you know, to make employers understand you know, that these uh, people are valuable um, employees. So there's certainly, mm -hmm. you know, work work there. And then just generally, I mean, you know, historically, we always sort of said that there was about a 20-year gap between research findings, um, yes. <laughs> you know, being actually implemented in clinical practice. Mm -hmm. So we need to, you know, really try to work hard to eliminate that gap and to, you know, shrink it down so that research findings are being integrated into 
um, clinical practice and 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 just uh, you know community practices much more quickly. Um, but I do think we're moving in the right direction there. Again, I, I feel like researchers have gotten a lot better. I mean, the whole open science movement is definitely, I think, exactly you know, yeah. really working towards that. And, and researchers are getting better at leveraging technology and social media to get their research findings <laughs> out there and more accessible to the public. So people are aware of what is happening in the lab. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I, you know, and I also think that what's nice too, is that we're seeing now a lot of, um, funding agencies, like, you know, uh, these agencies that give research grants to researchers that are actually, um, making a knowledge translation aspect, um, sort of part of the proposal. So, you know, in order to get funded, researchers have to show that they are going to engage in knowledge translation activities to disseminate their work. So, you know, those requirements, I think, are all, you know, moving things forward in terms of reducing that gap, for sure. And how, with with some people that I've spoken with, they often talk about, you know, when I share the research around autism, it'll highlight maybe some sort of difference or some sort of weakness. I'm going to use that word. That's not the one I want because that's what I will use in terms of what the research will show. And and then um, I'll get some messages and say like, what else, what can, what can I learn from research as somebody who's autistic that will help me <laughs> rather than pointing something that I'm struggling with? What, what is there in terms of the research that you know that can help somebody who has a child right now who's listening, um, who's autistic and says, how can I help my child who's in school right now, um, you know, function better, I guess? Yeah. You know, I, I really think that this is a problem with the research that's been done so far is that we've been focused so much on identifying what the impairments are. What are these deficits? What are these problems? What are these challenges? You know, and <laughs> yeah. and we're not really doing much research to look at strengths <laughs> um, yes. nearly enough. Um, you know, I mean, certainly clinically, I've been able to see for years that that these folks have all kinds of really cool strengths. Um, Mm. and I don't think the research has quite caught up to looking at that yet. I think that's something that, you know, is, is starting to happen, but really we need to do more of, but, um, you know, what I, what I will say is that, um, there is a, there's a study that I've been involved in for a few years now, just as, uh, as a clinician who's been doing the evaluations, um, on these studies, but, um, a researcher that I that I work with on her team, Dr. Mayetta Elsebach. She's the principal investigator at, at the Montreal site of this of this big longitudinal study called Pathways in ASD, where we've been following over 400 kids um, since the time they were diagnosed, you know, over 15 years ago at the age of two to four wow. years. And they're now like 17 to 19 years of age. And um, this study also is across Canada. So there are sites in Vancouver, Edmonton, um, Hamilton, Montreal, and Halifax. Um, and so, you know, what's great about this study is that there's very few studies so far that have tracked such a large number of kids for so many years so closely. Um, and the findings from this study are actually, you know, I think interesting because they're they're showing that some of the, the developmental course or some of the trajectories of things that we thought might have been true are not actually necessarily true. So, um, for example, um, you know, we, we know that from this research that about 20% of kids on the spectrum had, you know, relatively high adaptive functioning and, um, you know, have an improving course of symptoms over time, um, which, you know, I think maybe have maybe was more than what people might have previously thought. 
Um, and that, and it also showed that, you know, having more severe symptoms at the time of diagnosis did not necessarily mean that you would have worse, you know, day-to-day adaptive functioning. Um, and, you know, other things too, like a, a recent um, paper by some of my team members who, who found that kids who have a language regression. So, you know, language regression is something that we see in about 20 to 30% um, of kids on the spectrum. Um, you know, and I, and, I, and I think that there had sort of historically been this thought that kids who have regression, you know, that that might sing, signal a worse developmental outcome. But, you know, this study is able, has, has shown that actually when you follow those kids over time, they don't really have worse developmental outcomes um, than kids who didn't have a regression and that they tend yeah. to follow similar patterns of later language ability as kids without regression and didn't have a clinically, like a really clinically significant deficit in their language skills compared to the kids who didn't have that early regression. So I think there's, you know, there are some things that we're finding from, especially the longitudinal um, Mm -hmm. research that's showing things that lead to, that are, you know, protective factors or, you know, increased resilience, for example. So I think that Mm -hmm. those are the things that, you know, we have to do more work on to look really at at resilience and and strengths for sure. I love that we sort of like flipped it around. Like how is society behind and how is research behind? I didn't even plan on doing that, but it's nice to see, like we do need to bridge that gap. We do need to have a lot more communication. Um, I want to make sure that we have enough time to address some of the questions that parents asked um, that I ask you. Um, One of them was, so we answered the how early and the symptoms. Um, Somebody asked about DNA testing and if that's available for kids. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so right now, um, the, 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 the general recommendation is that any child who gets diagnosed um, would undergo what we call a CGH microarray. So it's a, it's a, it's a genetic test that can screen for different um, uh, genetic duplications or deletions. Um, so that's a, that's a standard test that is available. Unfortunately, you know, the yield from that test is not very high. Um, so we, you know, we only find some kind of genetic, uh, cause in, you know, 10 to 10 to 20% of, of kids that, um, undergo that testing. Um, but it is, you know, allowing us to, you know, find some, uh, you know, some genetic, um, causes. And sometimes, you know, these kids where we can find a genetic cause, sometimes that also can help with their other, um, with their overall medical care. So sometimes, you know, a child who might, might have what we call a syndromic form of autism, where there is sort of like an underlying genetic um, syndrome, which, you know, occurs in about 25% of um, people on the spectrum. So in those kids, you know, we often do see that they might have other medical issues as well. And other, and other health concerns. And so it can have important implications for their care because it can help identify, mm-hmm. you know, other um, medical issues that we should maybe be screening for and monitoring for and, you know, to try to make sure that the right things are in place early enough to address those issues. So that is some of the, the testing that is available. Um, there are also like specific tests that can be done to look for specific genes that we know are related um, to autism symptoms like Rett syndrome or fragile X or things like that. So those kinds of tests are available too, but I'm by no means a genetics expert. Um, (laughs) 
that's okay. <laughs> but there are more and more things now that they can look at certainly to to help identify you know what what some of those um, underlying genetic causes might be. Got it. Um, another parent wanted to know what the differences are in the brain between a child who, you know, who's on the spectrum versus one who isn't. Are we finding any differences in research? <laughs> yeah, uh, there are there there are many studies that have found differences, <laughs> but um, you know, there's not a lot of uh, consensus on necessarily mm-hmm. what those differences are because there are a lot of different methodologies, right? So you can study the brain using an MRI, an EEG, you can look at autopsies of actual brains, you can uh, you know, look at uh, uh, different you know, different types of, of data even from all of those different modalities. So there's a lot of different methodologies and sometimes something that's found in one of those types of studies does not translate to also being seen right. in another mm-hmm. type of study, right? So that's definitely made it a little muddy. There's also mm-hmm. um, differences across the lifespan. So, you know, brains, obviously they develop over time and they change. And so sometimes we might see a difference at a certain age that is not there later on. So if you're studying a sample that includes children and teenagers or, you know, teenagers and adults, it could wash out, you know, any findings that might be there because you're looking at too broad of an age range. So really there are, you know, a lot of difficulties in trying to find differences in brains because it can vary so much between, um, you know, ages, methodologies, and also between different subgroups. So we also know that, mm-hmm. you know, autism is very heterogeneous. People have all kinds of different presentations. And, you know, so sometimes people in these studies have been subgrouped into different, you know, types of groups, but those necess- haven't necessarily borne out any real good differences. So what we know really is that it's very muddy. There's not a lot of consistent (laughs) findings that have been replicated. um, And it can vary a lot based on the type of study being done. But one thing that generally seems to be accepted as true is that there are likely differences in the connectivity of the brain. Mm -hmm. So uh, by that, I mean, like how the different regions of the brain communicate with each other and are connected with each other. So we don't necessarily, you know, some studies have suggested that there's underconnectivity. Others have suggested that there's overconnectivity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And sometimes it depends on the specific network or brain regions you're looking at. So there could be overconnectivity in one area and underconnectivity in another area. So it really does depend quite a lot on what you're specifically looking at. Um, but, you know, generally speaking, we know that there are differences in connectivity, but we're not really sure exactly the direction of those differences at this point. Um, so there's a lot of work that still needs to be done in that area to kind of figure out exactly what's going on there. And it's important that we do share this. And I I, I thank you for, for saying that because sometimes there isn't an easy answer to, to a question. <laughs> and, and like you said, yes, it's, and so it's, it's muddy, but um, you know, uh, we, it's, yeah, we had to, <laughs> we had to mention that it's just complicated sometimes. Very complicated. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, uh, one parent asked about um, premature babies, whether or not there's an increased chance of autism. Yes. So um, certain complications around birth, like preeclampsia or prematurity, are known to increase the likelihood of getting um, diagnosed uh, later on. So absolutely, um, it can be a factor. Um, Obviously, it's not, you know, a one to one relationship. There are many, many, you know, many kids that are born Mm -hmm. prematurely. 
who don't develop autism, um, but it certainly can increase the likelihood for sure. And this this last question from a parent really marked me. Um, and I think we kind of touched on this, but she wanted to know, um, it was a mom and asked, you know, that her child has been diagnosed with um, autism and is there a hope for the future? I think this touches upon what we were talking about before and that we need to start including and not just including for the sake of it, but including realizing that they have so much to offer us. Um, how would you, I don't know, what else can we add maybe to help this parent see that there is a future? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I get asked this question a lot <laughs> when I, uh, you know, when I've given uh, a diagnosis of autism, you know, usually that is what the parent wants to know, you know, what is the, yeah. what is the prognosis? What is the outcome likely yeah. to be? And of course, you know, we, we can never say with any certainty, um, it depends on so many things, but you know, there are certain things that we do know. So depending on the individual that's in front of me, so, um, you know, there, there may be certain strengths that their, that their child might have that would indicate, um, you know, a better outcome later on. So for example, you know, um, having, um, better cognitive ability, um, having better language skills early on, those things are all, um, known to lead to better outcomes over time. But even in the absence of that, I mean, certainly we also know that early intervention can make a big difference. And, you know, parents being involved in that intervention is also one of the sort of key pieces that seems to really help. So I think, you know, if 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 a parent feels like they're looking for something that they can do. There, there is a lot that they can do because we know that parental involvement in in early intervention is something that can, you know, really make a difference. So I, I like to tell families, you know, of course, you know, I, I, I don't want to ever overstate, and and you know, if if there are very significant challenges, obviously, you know, those things can be difficult to overcome, and some people won't end up living independently and will need supports and services throughout their lifetime, but some people won't, you know, and I think more and more we're recognizing that there are, you know, more and more people um, on the spectrum who can live independently, can, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, be at school and, and, and hold down jobs successfully and have families, you know, so there really is a very wide, wide range of possibility. Um, Mm -hmm. So that's kind of what I, generally tend to to tell people and and that really you know i think more and more now as a society there are more services and accommodations um, to help people succeed to their to their potential than there used to be and i hope it continues as well because you know the more we start we continue to understand them and understand how we could um work with their differences and help them, right? They have strengths, like you said, and we have to do that as a society. I, I'm thinking of younger kids. The the symptoms that parents often talk to me about are um, the sensory sensitivities or yeah. really big meltdowns in terms of emotions. Uh, why do we see such big differences? And, and, and also what's interesting is with the sensory sensitivities, we're hearing about it from like the community of parents who have um, children on the spectrum, but then Children who are not on the spectrum also seem to show a lot of sensory sensitivity, you know, not all the kids, but we hear about it more now. Um, but with regards to to autism, why do we see such big differences in these two things? Yeah, um, so sensory processing differences are, are really a key defining feature of autism. It's one of the diagnostic criteria, actually. So 
Um, it's it's one of the symptoms that that's listed in our diagnostic criteria. It's it's not it's not present in every case, um, but it is present in many 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 uh, people uh, on the spectrum. And so, really, um, you know, we don't necessarily have a great understanding of, of you know why that is and where those are coming from, but. Um, we do feel that the differences in sensory processing are linked to what we were talking before about the brain connectivity where, you know, Mm -hmm. people might be hypersensitive to certain stimuli or the flip side might be undersensitive to certain Mm -hmm. stimuli because of likely how their brain is wired. Um, Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that can cause sensory overload, right? And, And there could be things that we're not even perceiving, right? So a neurotypical person might not even perceive a certain stimuli and a person on the spectrum for them, that might be overwhelming. Um, Mm -hmm. And so it can be challenging for, you know, neurotypical parents or, you know, teachers or or others to know how to support that because they Mm -hmm. might not even be noticing the stimuli that is, you know, so distressing um, to the, to the autistic individual. Um, Which could be like a sound or uh, uh, lights, right? I guess just so in in case parents have never heard about this, I just wanted to mention some examples. Yeah. So um, it can be pretty much any sensory modality, really. Um, But the common ones that we usually, you know, look for and, and, and quite often see are sensitivity to noise. So, you know, obviously not the type of noise that all people are sensitive to. I'm not talking about like, you know, fire sirens or things like that, but um, you know, regular everyday noises like, um, you know, a vacuum cleaner or a toilet flushing mm-hmm. or, you know, a blender or things like that, that, mm-hmm. that, you know, so maybe, you know, maybe young kids might react to the first mm-hmm. time they hear it, but they, you know, learn to tolerate and get used to sometimes, mm-hmm. um, you know, our, our, our little, uh, kiddos on the spectrum, maybe, you know, just we have a really hard time. Um, coping with those. So noise is one. Um, lights can be another one for sure. So, um, you know, bright, bright light, um, or certain, um, certain tactile sensitivities as well. So, you know, some kids really have a hard time wearing certain textures of clothing or, you know, dealing with tags or seams on their clothing and, you know, prefer certain textures and won't wear certain textures or won't wear things that are restrictive around their, you know, neck or their head or, you know, sometimes they don't like being touched around their head or different parts of their body. um, Or they, you know, have a really hard time touching certain things like, you know, sand or grass or, you know, things that are sticky or, you know, things like that. So we see all kinds of those things. Um, And we also see sensory seeking as well. So we see these sensory processing differences, both in terms of them reacting to stimuli, but also seeking out certain stimuli. So sometimes we see kiddos that seem to really um, seek out certain types of things, like they might visually examine something quite closely because they like the visual stimulation that they're getting, or they might like to feel or touch or lick or smell mm-hmm. uh, things that you wouldn't typically expect, you know, kids to want to smell or lick. <laughs> um, so we, we, we see all, all kinds of, of those kinds of sensory processing issues. Um, but the, you know, the good news is that once you identify what a trigger is, so, you know, once you identify that this particular stimuli is distressing to somebody and maybe causing them to get overwhelmed and have a meltdown, 
um, there are, you know, things that you can do about that, right? So, you know, sometimes very simple things like, you know, a child could wear headphones if the noise is too much, right? So some of those things are easy. Um, but generally, I recommend that uh, they get an occupational therapy evaluation to look at those sensory processing differences and to, you know, help create a, a treatment plan for that to, mm -hmm. to help them, you know, both find ways of coping but then also perhaps even find ways of gradually increasing their tolerance. Got it. Before we end our conversation, I just wanted to go back to prevalence because I was curious to know why you mentioned boys and why is it more prevalent in boys? Do we know why? <laughs> so first of all, historically, <laughs> you know, we, we weren't necessarily capturing girls as much. So we thought that the prevalence rate in boys was, I think, a lot higher than what it actually was. So, uh, you know, a lot of studies find a prevalence of four to one um, in boys to girls. So that's the ratio that, you know, we often see. Um, and, you know, more recent studies are sometimes finding a, 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 a ratio of three to one. So, you know, it is more prevalent. At the same time, I think we're not necessarily picking up on, on all of the girls. So it, it'll be interesting that to see, a, you know, how that prevalence changes over time mm -hmm. once I think we get better at identifying girls. But nevertheless, you know, people do still tend to think that there is a true difference in prevalence. Mm -hmm. And I and I think that is likely true. Um, and the reason so a lot of people have sort of posited this idea of what we call the female protective effect, that mm -hmm. there's something about being female that biologically kind of um, protects you from um, developing autism. Um, so there is, you know, some research to support that idea um, that it is, it seems to be more prevalent in boys than girls because girls often seem to have a higher, need to have a higher uh, etiological risk or a higher genetic loading let's say, to end up with the, the diagnosis as opposed to boys who maybe need, you know, fewer of those kind of uh, risk factors to, to develop um, autism. Thank you. I was, I was curious about that. <laughs> um, to end off our conversation, if somebody is listening and they have a child um, who has received a diagnosis and they'd like to participate in research, how can they reach you? Uh, everything you mentioned, by the way, will be uh, in the show notes. So for those of you listening, there'll be links, so it makes it easier for you. But I'd just like to hear from you uh, before we go. Yeah, certainly. So there's a few ways. So um, one way is to uh, visit our website online. So at .theneuro.ca slash ACAR, um, A-C-A-R. Um, mm -hmm. So that's a, that's a, that's a sort of a shortcut to, to our website that has information about research. Um, families can also actually just email us directly um, at autism at mcgill.ca. So that is the mm -hmm. email address where, you know, we have people checking that constantly and responding to parents' queries. And I myself often respond to parents' questions that come in um, on that on that email address. So autism at mcgill.ca is a really good way to directly get information from our team. Um, and they can also follow us on Twitter um, uh, at NeuroACAR, as well as on LinkedIn, on Facebook. So there's there's a variety of ways where they can get information. 
thank you for taking the time to chat with me and sharing this important information. Um, I'd love a follow-up in a couple of years to see like how, how everything's progressed, looking at the barriers and hopefully we'll see changes uh, in, in less than 20 years <laughs> in our society. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Thank I you. hope so too. Thank you so much for having me. It was my pleasure. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please take a moment to rate and review the podcast. And if you do so, um, send me an email at info at kirsteron.com. Let me know that you did and I will send you a free PDF from Curious Neuron Academy as a thank you. And you can follow us on Instagram at curious underscore neuron or visit our website at curiousneuron.com. Thanks. See you next week.